everything is ML, right? Like literally every app has some form of ML in it today, whether or not they wrote it or their ad provider is using it or, you know, whatever, right? It all cascades around with ML. Welcome to Delivery Interrupted. We've got something special for today's episode, an interview with David Aronchik, the founding product manager for Kubernetes, one of the creators of the Kubeflow project, and most recently, the head of open source machine learning strategy at Microsoft. David has not only seen the evolution of MLOps from the beginning, but helped create and define it. Before we get into the interview, we do need to say that it took us quite a bit longer than we'd hoped to get our interview with David published. Given the speed at which the MLOps world is moving, some things we discuss might be a little out of date. One thing that's certainly out of date is David's role. He recently announced he's leaving Microsoft, but we're going to leave his introduction as is. In today's episode, we're going to cover David's thoughts on getting started with ML pipelines, the economic and legal implications of adopting ML, as well as what David sees as being next for the industry. So let's dive in. So thank you, David, for joining us today. It's great to talk to you. Can you just tell everybody who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm Dave Aronchek. I lead open source machine learning strategy at Azure in the Azure ML group. That's our cloud and platform AI. That's where we host particularly large workloads or, you know, workloads where, where customers want to be hands-off on all the specifics of a particular machine learning workload. So that might be training, ingesting data sets, rolling out deployment to inference or batch or whatever it might be. We give you a single endpoint to take care of all that. I came here about two years ago. Previously, I was at Google where I was the first non-founding PM for Kubernetes and which I led for, on the PM side for about three years, that and their hosted platform, Google Container Engine. And then while I was also at Google, I started the Kubeflow project, which is a cloud-native ML platform for Kubernetes, which continues to this day and, and with a lot of success from a terrific community. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in the ML ops space? Yeah, you know, I, I led Kubernetes PM for uh, several years and, and co-led it for a portion of it as well. And, and during that time, what we saw were people really wanting to move over and use cloud native apps. The idea of distributed computing was very attractive to them. Uh, it gave you a place to roll out immutable apps and, and do it in a declarative way. Really a change for the way that people were working. Unfortunately, there was still a real lag for domain-specific solutions. Some solutions still are, are quite challenging to roll out, roll out on cloud-native, things like uh, storage and, and stateful apps like databases and things like that. But, but there are a large class of them that are really easy to roll out when you know how, of course. And so at, at the uh, beginning of 2017, I'd been working on Kubernetes for several years, and, and I started to think about, well, what, what is a domain-specific app that we could roll out that would be really positive for the community. And I've been obsessed with uh, machine learning for a long time. I'm not a statistician or a data scientist. I just really like the space. And I do I have a lot of hope that, that what we're able to do in machine learning will be a benefit to the world overall. And so about the middle of, of 2017, we, we came together with a series of different folks inside Google, outside Google, and you know, to come together and, and look at the assets we had in machine learning to make deployment of this you know, platform quite much easier. 
And we decided to really narrow it down to something very, very simple. The first version of Kubeflow had just three components in it, Jupyter, uh, Jupyter Server specifically, which allowed you to spin up a notebook, uh, a TensorFlow CRD, which is a way to deploy TensorFlow, which is a multi-tier app in a straightforward way, and then TensorFlow Serving, which allowed you to deploy a serving inference point, right? Just those three components. And that, that declarative rollout was really the start of the MLOps journey for me. As we dug in deeper with customers, it wasn't just about rolling this out. It was then, how do you start to instantiate real pipelines for this stuff? Because that's what you would see. Almost every ML workload that I've seen is this microservice-oriented structure where you have a variety of steps, each of which are specific to their particular domain. So you may have one for data, you might have one for feature engineering, you might have one for hyperparameter sweeps, you might have one for training, you might have one for packaging, and, and so on and so forth, and many, many others in between. And so the rolling out of these apps uh, and components, as they're called in Kubeflow, was step one. Step two is, how do you build a pipeline that understands all the values of these steps and lets people pick and choose whatever solutions they'd like for their domain of choice and their ML workload of choice. And so very, very quickly thereafter, I believe it was by February, I wanna say, we integrated Argo, which is a workflow engine for Kubernetes into Kubeflow, I made it part of the default install. And then by the middle of 2018, we launched Kubeflow Pipelines, which was based on Argo and, and yet used a Python native language. I mean, it uses raw Python, excuse me, as, as its DSL in order to create these pipelines. And it's just cascaded forward from there. And then over and over and over again, I see customers wanting to pick and choose, yet use these concepts of workflows in order to get it out the door. So these days you're working on Azure and ML strategy for Microsoft. So what's changed and what stayed the same since you were initially working on Kubeflow? Yeah, you know, I think that the, the number one thing I've seen is a real understanding by all of the hyperscale clouds and many of the open source projects of the idea that you don't have to supply everything in a single service, right? The idea of picking and choosing things that make sense to you is more powerful than it's ever been. And so I may choose to use something from AWS or something from Google or something from Azure. Maybe I'm using my on-prem and things like that. And, I'll, and we're gonna merge them all together. Back in the day, you would see most ML workloads and, and most of the major companies providing these really quite rich end-to-end -end platforms because it, it was the fastest way to get going. Now, I think you, you look at things as much a, a much more generic pipeline as the top level orchestrator. And it could be something like Puppet, it could be you know, a CI-CD system like Jenkins, could be GitHub Actions, could be a cloud specific one, uh, Azure has Azure DevOps and, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then that will kick off a series of things inside of a particular domain. So like I said, maybe, you know, let's say I'm using all GitHub Actions to accomplish this, right? Inside that, get the first step of the GitHub action might call into Spark to execute a data pipeline. And then when Spark is complete, it's gonna hand back to GitHub Actions and say, I'm done, please continue. And then the, you'll get to the next step where maybe you'll use Kubeflow and Kubeflow pipelines to execute a training step. So it will, GitHub Actions will call down into Kubeflow and go forward and then a hand back. And then maybe you get to, to a deployment and you wanna use a hosted service, again, something like Azure 
machine learning, and you would hand your, your model to Azure Machine Learning to, to ultimately roll it out. And though I mentioned a lot of brands here and open source tools, it really is very mix and match. And I think many of the cloud providers and most of the open source tools really have embraced that. Rather than having to provide all of these various solutions end to end, they're able to focus on what they're great at and provide clean hands-offs and clean contracts to other steps of say, hey, I'm done with my data set. Here's a, a box of, or a you know, document of metadata that describes where I wrote it, what the lineage is, what feature execution I might've done against it, engineering, excuse me, I did against it, so on and so forth. And then that becomes part of the overall record. One of the things that we've certainly heard from talking to a lot of other people is that uh, a lot of tooling for ML and doing ML work and building ML capabilities in your applications is very different from traditional applications. With traditional applications, things tend to be a little bit more linear. You probably don't need GPUs to spin up in order to build your application. You talk a lot about how you shouldn't have to have a purpose-built CI CD pipeline for ML applications and instead try to use more generic CI CD applications. However, the tooling and stuff is so different and the way of working is so different. What do you see as the benefits and pitfalls of general purpose CI CD tools as opposed to a more domain specific tool? Yeah, you know, I think it's a really interesting question. You're exactly right. I, I've seen that as well. I don't, I, I can't remember a last time that I saw a real revolution around applications like I've seen in ML. And, and by revolution, I mean um, not just hardware things. So certainly that's that's a, a big concern. It's it's that you have a situation in which code is only half of the problem. If I handed you code and said, "What does this do?" You could do some form of reasoning about it. But the real answer is you wouldn't be able to look at it versus if I went and looked at Go or Python, I could say almost exactly what this would do. With, with ML, you can look at the, the code, but only once you train on the data, will you know what that model's actual performance looks like and whether or not this is good or bad or, or, or whatever. And that's a real challenge for traditional like, like pipelines. The, the reason I like the generic thing as a general orchestrator and then domain-specific sub-orchestration inside that is because general orchestrators do understand and have many, many hooks that address a lot of the concerns, right? So imagine, you know, manipulating web hooks and, and storing lineage, storing histories, viewing runs, things like that. Orchestrators are built for that. You know, again, Puppet, Jenkins, GitHub Actions, all these kind of things. They understand that and they, they make those first-class tooling. But, but asking those general orchestrators to understand the core concepts within a given ML step is, is not good, right? Like it's, it's just, you can of course do it. It's, it's all just code, but it does require a lot of understanding to do, to, you know, trigger based on data changes or, or do diffs or do fan outs for hyperparameter sweeps, things of that sort. You know, you're really going to want something domain specific for those kind of things because they, they, those pipelines do tend to be very specific to the particular need that you have at that step. And trying to, you know, cross responsibilities there, having the generic orchestrator understand a specific domain or trying to under, have a specific domain orchestrator understand that it's part of a larger uh, overall workflow. Again, it can always be done. And, and certainly, uh, you know, Kubeflow pipelines 
because it's based on Argo, offers a lot of that. But I really do like the idea of breaking down these into very specific things and separating you know, concerns as much as you possibly can. And so that's, that's why I'm a pre I prefer that. Now that said, it, that, that's more complicated. You're gonna need to do a little bit more work around debugging and basing your, your own tooling and things like that. You know, a single monolith running on a single machine is always gonna be simpler. But that doesn't mean it's more scalable and it certainly doesn't mean it's, it's uh, more reliable over time. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it matches something that I've talked about with a lot of people in the past, which is when it comes to just continuous delivery practices in general, you tend to want to have a linear process, at least how you think about that process. But you want to architect your pipeline in a way that is devoid of the underlying steps that actually take place and instead focus on the high level value that you're trying to deliver for the company and how that application is flowing from keyboard all the way to customer hands. And so I see that side of the story of being able to architect your overall delivery process and then each section in that hands off to a domain specific tool like Coop Pipelines or whatever. And in specific, it's in, in ML, it's particularly important to, to do this and to have this really microservice-oriented pipeline. It doesn't, again, it doesn't have to be this two-layer structure, but, but ML is advancing so quickly. When you look at things like explainability and responsibility and, and lineage and things like that, you know, there are brand new tools coming out all the time. And if you spend a little bit of time building a pipeline like this, instead of having this monolith, you're going to be able to drop in the latest tools faster and, and be more responsive to your customer needs than, than ever. Again, it, it's not going to be as fast to get your first model out, but it definitely will be faster uh, for your second, third, and, and 10,000th model. So how should companies think about getting started creating that ML tool chain in the pipeline and piecing it all together? You got to start somewhere and that's such a daunting task for a lot of companies. Where do you begin? Yeah, the, the, the key is always going to be to start small, right? There are an enormous amount of models out there that, that are very good at, at solving key issues, even as they are today, right? And so I'm a big fan of beginning to build your ML pipeline by picking a, a problem you're having today. There are, there are many that are, are quite well understood. Uh, recommendation engine, for example, build, building a recommendation engine, building a natural language processor for things like sentiment analysis, lead scoring, whatever it might be. There, there are a lot of problems out there and, and really identifying that problem today is critically important. The second thing you're gonna to wanna to do is figure out how you're solving that problem today. And it could, it is likely code and it is likely not particularly great, but it is how you're solving it. And, and that's going to be your baseline that you're going to want to work against. I see so many times people like rolling out a solution because it's ML and then getting no benefit over the previous code. And in many ways, lots of downside because they've now implemented a black box of that kind. The third step is going to be to try and figure out, you know, what, what you'd like to achieve as part of this with, you know, automated metrics on the other side, right? And, and today we, you know, in ML, we call those test sets and things like that. You could be anything, right? It could be unit tests, things like that. Always start with that. I'm, I am a big, pretty big fan of things like test-driven development and so on. And you build, building automated probers against the artifact that you end up are targeting is incredibly powerful because you know at the end of this thing, whether or not it's going to be good or bad. And the more of those you have, the better. Uh, and to be clear, you want them to be very declarative so you can always look, go and introspect them and figure out exactly what's going on and use your existing tooling and then your, your future tooling and, and compare against them. 
the 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 next step is going to be my my preferences for folks getting started is not to go and write your own model from scratch. My preference is actually mostly to do things around fine tuning. Fine tuning the models where you'll download an entire model that's been pre-trained for a particular problem set and then layer on your own data on top of that problem set to get a result. It's a very quick way to get some nice results out the door. It'll help you start to set up this overall pipeline. And now, as you may have heard, you now have two steps, right? You have the, the fine tuning step and you have the rollout step. And, and now you're, you're giving yourself the skeleton in which you can build your overall framework. So execute that fine tuning and immediately upon completing that fine tuning, execute your unit tests and your overall regression and so on and comparison. So that's, that's a, a, the, the next uh, step there. And then the third one is you know, wiring that up to some form of a data provider, you know, an automated data provider. And by that, I mean, not, not automated automated, but like it could be something as simple as a, a blob that, that executes an event. And when, the, when something is uploaded to that, it triggers your CI-CD pipeline. And your CI-CD pipeline, your fine tuning step, looks at the information was handed about the blob, right? And so, for example, let's say, you know, it's midnight, I do a data export into a blob. And again, this is just very coarse. Everyone's going to have something different here, but you know, for the sake of, of doing it over a podcast, I'm just going to explain it. So you, you, you export your data, goes to a CSV, for example, you upload that to a blob. That blob, every major cloud and every major storage provider has a way of eventing against that blob and use that event to trigger your pipeline. And in the event, as part of the payload, you say, this is the, the specific data that I'm asking you to go. It's a file handle or a URL or whatever it might be. And then also a, a signature, a lineage against that and say like, I've, I fingerprinted this and here it is. And then you hand that to your fine tuning step, your fine tuning step executes, and then it automatically executes your, your CI/CD system or excuse me, the uh, unit testing at the end of it. And now presto, you are better than 90% of people around MLOps pipelines. I, I'm dead serious, just that and you're way out ahead. Now. There's lots there that I wouldn't consider particularly production ready. Exporting your data to a CSV is not good practice. If you can avoid it, don't. It's not the worst thing in the world, especially if you attach lineage to it, you're good. Ideally, you wouldn't just run unit tests. You'd also roll it out to Canary. Not, not necessarily to production, that's, that's a little bit more advanced, but rolling it out to a Canary endpoint or a staging endpoint that you could now run your, you know, begin to include in your application would be much more powerful as well. And you know, there are many other things that you start to fold in. But, but the important bit here is you're now at the end of what I've described, which you know, even, even for new folks should probably take a pretty finite amount of time, a week or less if you're particularly good at CICD. You've now given yourself the skeleton to begin adding in and understanding what's going on and, and folding things out. And that's a really powerful step. You know, it, just that will, will start you down this journey. I really like you kind of starting with that model tuning process for, for one reason in particular that I've like started playing around with this idea of transfer learning to begin with. Yeah. So when you first get started with ML, if you decide that you do in fact need to do deep learning in order to deliver some value to your customers, 
one great place that I've seen people start with is that transfer learning. Start with something that was trained for some other purpose, but it's tangential to the one that you're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And then like, you know, twist the model into to solving the problem that you're trying to solve. And then it's become, it starts off as a tuning problem rather than a start from scratch problem. Have absolutely. you seen people be successful with that as well? Oh, absolutely. Look, the, the vast majority, uh, when you look at something like OpenAI or BERT or, or XDNN or any of the like fantastic language models that are out there right now, and there's a brand new one every day, but those, those are literally millions of dollars worth of, of compute in order to train them. The, the idea that someone would start from scratch around that is crazy town, right? You're not going to have the corpus. It's not going to be clean. It's not going to, it will literally call you, cost you millions of dollars uh, to do it, which is all of which is not good. Fine tuning is a perfectly valid place to start and, and definitely successful. And there are great models out there for many, many of these problems. So absolutely, I, I think those are terrific. And, and just to double click on one thing you said, remember most models today are not deep at all, right? They're like 90, 95% of them are uh, scikit-learn and NumPy and you know, on and on and on. Uh, so, so don't feel like you have to take on the world. Either use someone else's model or just do you know, np.fid or whatever it might be and, and you're, you're off to the races. But again, no matter what it is, deep or not, having a pipeline is the key here. Without a pipeline, you're, you really put yourself at a lot of risk. And I don't just mean like tech debt or anything like that. I mean like literally legal risk or bias risk or security risk and things like that. That's interesting because we've been talking with people working within organizations in ML. And one of the things we're hearing a lot is that there's a great deal of frustration out there about being able to actually have meaningful business impact right now. So it's interesting for me to hear you say that going light on the data science part and, and really focusing on that pipeline part as being the place to start. Oh, yeah. You know, I think you've really put your, your finger on it. The, the essence of machine learning as it exists today is an amazing paper that nobody knows what to do with, right? And, and I see those all the time. I read them like every day. I'm like, holy crap, this is incredible. And then I'm like, wait, how would I use this again? Like the... the it's just the, the nature of, of pure research. There's nothing wrong. I don't want to stop researchers at all. But there is a real need for us as an industry to come up with some clean domain-specific things that, that, that solve real business problems. And, and again, the funny part about it is, and I know I shouldn't be saying this as someone in ML, but like, look, for better or worse, you're going to get about 90% of the benefit just by cleaning your data. Like, I don't know how to break it to you, but that's it. And, and yes... There are wonderful things that are, are truly not achievable without ML, right? Basically, anytime you touch anything today that involves going from one modality to another, so picture to text, text to speech, speech to action, anything like that, you have ML to thank. There's just no rule-based system, or it's highly unlikely you'll come up with a rule-based system that achieves anywhere near the performance of, of a deep model and things like that. So I don't want to underplay the real value. But look, I, you know, I've been in the in software a long time, and like people were doing lead scoring and sentiment analysis in 2005. It, it, it wasn't unheard of. It just wasn't particularly good. So there are plenty of solutions out there. ML and and you know does offer a, a next level if you're ready to invest. But really don't think about, you know, having to understand sigmoid function or, 
you know, how many epochs this thing ran or whatever, right? It like, start small, start with somebody else's code, to, you know, somebody else's model, whatever, get your muscles working around that in the context of your business problem. Start there and before you, you know, start to rewrite uh, everything. Yeah, honestly, louder for those in the back. Like it's, I, every company that I've talked to so far about this has told me stories of how they will spin up a data science team and then give them no direction and basically just say like, all right, let us know when you've like developed the next million dollar feature. And it just doesn't work that way. If you're not aligning to business value, then what are you doing? And yeah. you should start with that business value and even first ask, do you need ML? Um, yeah, and then you absolutely. Know, if the answer is yes, then maybe don't start with deep learning you know, as your very first step. Yeah, I could, couldn't agree more. I, I think there's a question around economics of ML where I've talked to a, a lot of companies where the ML capabilities that they need, while it may be a priority for the company, it really only represents you know 5% of their applications to make up a number. It's hard to talk about the overall value that it has to your customers relative to the insane cost that it sometimes incurs to get started. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the economics of training ML models and doing the data management and whether or not you take advantage of the cloud there. You know, do you start off with on-prem? You know, what's the economic footprint like? Yeah, you know, I, I, my friend, you know, very prominent VC in, in the Valley, I'm, I'm not going to name drop, but like he likes to joke, you know, and, and say about ML, he'll pull out his phone and he'll hand it to someone and say, you know, show me the ML model, show me the ML on here. And people are like, all right, you're right. There, there aren't any ML. And he's like, wrong. Everything is ML, right? Like literally every app has some form of ML in it today, whether or not they wrote it or their ad provider is using it or, you know, whatever, right? It all cascades around with ML, but it all comes back to those, those business processes. The cost is a really interesting one. You know, the, the, the way to think about it for me is stop treating data scientists like they are not coders. Uh, they're coders just like anyone else. And how do you evaluate your development team when it comes to, you know, what to invest in and how many people and, and on and on and on? Because that's really important. They're doing the same job. They are given a business problem. They're given a set of tools and, and data and things like that. And then they are, it's their responsibility to roll out something that improves the lives of their customers. And it's up to you. So you, you come up with your product backlog and you say, hey, you know what? People clicking through from, you know, step one to step two drop by 20%. Let's figure out what we can do around that. You could solve that with pure code. You could solve that with an ML recommender. You could solve that with, I have no idea, changing the color scheme. Who knows, right? There's a lot of different options there. It's up to you to, to make the case on why to invest in this feature and, and, you know, ML and data science is one portion of that. It's not everything, but it's also not nothing. And, and so I would say my, my number one recommendation is look at your development team as, a, you know, an entire set of skills and, and figure out how you're going to address your business needs first. And then, and only then when you say this is the, you know, a top business need, we need to address it in this sprint or next quarter or whatever it might be along your development chain, you double click in there, you investigate, somebody's going to say, oh, we can do this rule-based, somebody's going to say, oh, we can do this data science-based, or oh, that we can do this ML-based, 
and and then the team decides on what the best uh, tool for the job is and then you go from there and yeah you know because data scientists do have a a different skill set than a java developer for example you may not have that skill set on staff and and so you may need to explore should we go do this ourselves should we contract out should we use a cloud whatever it might be but i i would argue that once you have a certain amount of data I don't know what that number is, a, a terabyte, 10 terabytes, whatever, sitting around in some form of logs or some form of imagery or some form of video. It is becoming more and more obvious that the only way you're gonna make use of that data is with something like ML. But I cannot stress enough, you know, really focus on your business priorities first before you start down any path around, you know, choosing a tool first. It's interesting that you say stop treating data scientists like they're they're not coders. So is there a skill set that data scientists need in order to move from writing research papers to being able to provide this business impact that we're talking about? Well, look, what what I've seen typically is that uh, data scientists will will use use a specific language to say the least. It's almost always something, you know, from the subset of Python or R, you know, ML.net, something like that. So it, it may be a specific language that, that may be different than the core language your app is using. And there, there are, you know, the portfolio grows ever larger, JAX with, with you know, JavaScript and, and so on. But the, they often get treated as a silo because they are writing potentially inside a Jupyter notebook or they're writing raw Python when the rest of your app is in Go or whatever it might be. Uh, and so they do get treated separately. That said, as an industry, we have let them down. I'm sorry to report, but they are treated uh, as isolated individuals. They throw their code over the wall and say, could you please implement this? They, they, they hand over Jupyter notebooks to, to production, which then get broken down and converted. And none of these are necessarily bad patterns, but you know, when you look at the best practice of, of software engineering generally, you see coders who are very close to the final production artifacts, right? They may go through a compilation step, but, but mostly what they wrote is what appears in production. And, and because of that, they're given all these tools to introspect their code, they can do profiling, they can do all these various things so that when it gets to production, it's not gonna fall apart. I, I think that is, like I said, I think we really let data scientists down. Jupyter Notebooks are like amazing. Their, their community is fantastic and it's a wonderful exploration tool. And, and there are folks like Netflix and in the Jupyter Project who have done amazing, amazing work with, with things like NB-Dime and B-Convert to convert these artifacts over. That said, every step of conversion and inclusion in libraries is one more layer of abstraction that you have to debug through and introspect and, and pass along information. And, and that's just not great as a practice. Ideally, like I said, you look at the best practices of coders and you say, we, we're gonna bring our tools and production to you rather than forcing you to go through all these steps to get to production. So as an industry, I think we just need to do a lot, lot better. And, and there's no way to paper over that. To be clear, to the direct answer to you, uh, of your question, do they have special skills? Of course, every developer has a special skill based on their domain. Front-end developers know more about CSS than a back-end developer who knows about fan-out, than a UI developer knows about, you know, responsive tech and, and layout and, and so on. They all know special tools, or excuse me, special skills, 
uh, that's why they're specialized. So there's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's working as intended. The problem is, is that when they're treated as some special class of thing, that's not good. And, and to be clear, everything I just said is related to data scientists who are part of your team. There are certainly pure research data scientists who, who are operating in a way that, that may never appear in production or may appear as just exploration, which is perfectly fine. No problem at all with that. That said, it is a personal area of passion of mine to even bring those people closer to production. I, I say these stories all the time. Very, very large providers, uh, again, who will remain nameless, would, would get papers from other providers, right? MSR publishes a paper, Google publishes a paper, whatever it might be. And they get the code right there. And then it takes literally weeks for, for experts in the field who know more than anything about the space and their cloud to reproduce the original results. That's super broken too, right? You know, that, that used to happen back in the day and, you know, long before my time with Unix and Fortran and all these things. Oh, you're not including the right libraries or you're on a slightly different version of GCC than me, whatever it might be. We need to get past that from a reproducibility and a data science perspective. And that's a huge area of passion of mine. And, and there's a lot of work I'm doing right now with the TFX team out of Google, Kubeflow and Kubeflow Pipelines and, and many other folks in the uh, provider about what sort of metadata we might be able to publish to make it much simpler to reproduce workloads, much in the same way that Docker broke through when it came to reproducible artifacts. Could we think about something similar around the, the you know, what would the equivalent of a Docker file be, for example, for an entire ML experiment? Again, we're very early thinking. If you'd like to come join us at in the Kubeflow Pipeline discussion group where the TFX folks are participating as well, we would love to have you. You talked a little bit about this earlier, about being able to have a fingerprint on every piece of data. And I'm assuming that is actually a part of the legal and ethical concerns around machine learning. Can you talk a little bit more about what those legal and ethical concerns are that, that companies should consider when they are adopting ML into their products? Yeah, I, I talk about this all the time. This is the hidden nightmare, the iceberg that is coming for all of us. And I just don't think anyone is prepared. So the, I, I used to tell this canonical example, and I don't even have to tell it anymore because literally, I think about three weeks ago, it was proven in court about this. So when you, the, the state of California records everyone to record what people are being charged for their insurance. And they're able to map that back to addresses. A company called Good, Good Insurance, I believe it is, did research on that data. They published a blog post on it on Priceonomics. Uh, we should link to it in the show notes. Where they, they did an analysis and they showed that African-American neighbor, people living in African-American neighborhoods were charged up to 20% more for their insurance based on nothing. <laughs> like the, the crime rates were the same, the number of claims were the same, everything was the same. It was just that they happened to live in these historically higher African-American or, or minority-owned neighborhoods. That is horrific, right? Just because of who you are and where you live, you're being charged more. Again, I'm not saying they were in whatever, higher property damage neighborhoods. The numbers were the same, and yet they were being charged more. Now, I have no evidence to prove this, but my gut says somewhere there behind all of this, there is an ML model that is suggesting what this pricing should be because that just smells like what it would be. 
Yeah, so I, I think that you will see this across all sorts of industries. And what you will eventually have is you will have people going to their providers, whatever they may be, of, of financial services, of medical services, whatever it is, and, and say, here is this bill that you've charged me, and here is the exact same bill over here, except it happens to be from whatever, a white male, and I'm in a protected class. I'm older, I'm LGBT, I'm you know minority, whatever it might be, right? Those two will be placed side by side, and you will go to your pro provider and say, prove to me that I didn't get charged this additional amount because I am in this protected class. Prove it. And they will have every right to do so and ask that. And then the, the service provider will be legally responsible to go and show the exact data that this model was trained on and prove that when two populations, one of whom comes from a protected class and one of whom doesn't, are both presented that the numbers come out the same. And so this might've been an anomaly or there might've been some underlying condition or something like that that was not related to them being in particular class. Now, the, most models I suspect will pass just fine and that's okay, right? It will be, oh, you know what? You, you had your appendix out, you know, six years ago. That's, so that's why, fine, that's okay. But unless you can prove that this particular query that you got was okay because it came from this data and we reran the model and everything looks right that liability is on you as a as a service provider and so that is huge and there will be a cascade of these things and rightly so because those black box models have been negatively affecting you know minorities people of color people from protected classes for their entire lives for for years for hundreds of years and now it's not ml's fault this is just pulling out the data that was already there and already highly biased against these populations. And unfortunately now, there's, there couldn't be clearer evidence about it and, and legal exposure around it. So uh, having that lineage, being able to prove that line by line is critical. And anyone who's using ML in any way is gonna need that. Just to get a little bit more specific about it, if I'm a company and I'm worried that I'm gonna get sued, what do I need to do to make sure that I have the data to prove a lack of bias? And also, how do I make sure that I'm not accidentally biased? So unfortunately, the accidental bias is, is much, much harder. I'm going to actually punt on that because we don't have a way to detect, like, because of the nature of many of these things and privacy laws and things like that, you're going to, we need much better tools to figure this out. There are interesting tools. Google has a number of them called Slicer and so on. Uh, model analysis, which will allow you to basically look at a given output of a model and break it down by a, a number of inbound systems and, and inputs into it, which is very, very important. But it's not, there's not a great automated way to do that today. And so it'll be up to a lot of your compliance departments and things like that. The other things are not that hard. First, like I said before, at, when, when I was talking about setting up your ML pipeline at the start, you need a fingerprint on exactly what this data set was, right? It was, you know, we trained on this body, you know, this query starting on this date to this date, here was the inclusion. This is what went into the system. You need to cryptographically sign that, prove that it can never be, you know, that's an immutable thing. And you need to store that somewhere. And there are lots of tools. Apache Data Lake, excuse me, Delta Lake is a, a open standard around how to do diffs over a variety of different things and, and highly recommended that you, you look at that. So the, you need to, to fingerprint the this system, the data, 
You need a fingerprint, uh, you need to store that. And then you need to fingerprint your entire pipeline. And, and by that, what I mean is you say, here are all the inputs and outputs for this pipeline. And at the end of that pipeline, here's a signature for everything that went into it and, and sign your model and make sure that you, you have all that complete as well. And then finally, you need to record every time you make an inference against that model. And you need to say, this model, this particular inference for this human being here came from this model signature. And then you need to store that model forever. Now, you know, I, I know I've said a number of requirements. Most of this is pretty well addressed today. You already have a lot of things like GitHub, which offers you uh, immutable stores of code over time. Uh, as long as you store your GitHub, or excuse me, as long as you store your workflows in GitHub, there you go. That's a recording of your entire workflow as it went in and out. Lots of folks don't store their store the metadata inputs and outputs of particular steps. That's probably something that people should really do. Not hard, but like it's something that you, you need to do. Data is a big one. A lot of people don't do um, storage and lineage of data, especially because it does tend to get costly. But, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're living in a new world here. You really should be um, doing that. But it's, it's not complicated. There are, there are known techniques for everything I have. I don't have to point into space and say, miracle happens here. There are lots of ways to, to go about this. Uh, it's just that most people are forgetting it. By the way, I'd like to put in a, a small thing. The funny part about all of this is that the people, this, this has been happening since long before ML came along, right? I, you know, the number of models or, or uh, pricing solutions or things like that that were based on an Excel spreadsheet sitting on some you know, uh, person's laptop it, written in 1994 is very large. And that was never treated like code. It was never like isolated and, and provided lineage. You never recorded what happened there. Anyone could go in and change it at any time. So like this is a historical problem, but now we have the tools and we have much clearer evidence around this than ever before, which is both good because it will reduce bias in our world, but it's also um, bad if you don't take the steps to prevent it. You've talked to me in the past about the importance of storing that metadata as things flow through the pipeline and you know doing the fingerprint. I know in the DevOps space, we have things like Graphius and we have the metadata store and it's all cryptographically signed and beautiful and all that. Can you talk a little bit about what tools are available right now and what the future of them are for storing metadata across an ML pipeline? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Graphius is a great one. I, I'm a huge fan of OpenTelemetry. I think they're doing some really cool things. Uh, again, another open source tool that, that has many, many different plugins. At, at the end of the day, it, you know, again, to, to focus on the end benefit here, ask yourself, you know, based on a particular inference, how would I go back and understand everything that went into understanding why this inference happened, right? With code, it's quite trivial, right? You, you roll it out, you see an inference, and you know exactly what version of code surfaced this thing. With an ML model, it's not just about the code. It's about the entire pipeline that built it. And so just start there and start scratching your head. Look, I, you know, I don't, the, the, the starting point of just a straight up NoSQL document database that, that recorded all the stuff and had a, you, you know, a UUID associated with each step, that's going to get you 90% of the way there, I promise. Just push every input and output there and have, hey, here's the fingerprint for the run. Honestly, you're 90% of the way there. But just like with backups, until you've tried to restore your backup, you don't have a backup. 
So exact same story here. Until you've tried to introspect and walk backwards from a, an inference in order to understand exactly when it went into do it, you don't have anything. So go and do that, right? Go and query your model and walk back as though you had a brand new fresh laptop, what you would do to, to reconstruct it. And, and like I said, it doesn't have to be much. Hell, it could be flat files on a disk. I don't care. As long as it's immutable and it's stored forever, you're in good shape. Being dynamically queryable in comparison and dashboards and stuff like that, that's all nice to have. Just a place where you store exactly what went on is plenty. One last question for you. MLOps is obviously a fairly new field. What do you see on the horizon in terms of improved tools and improved processes and products for it? So what's coming up? Yeah, I, I mean, you've heard me touch on a lot of what I think is, is really powerful today. The, the thing that I'm most excited about are, are basically twofold. One is, is that idea of building two-level orchestration in, in, a, in a really clean way. I, I think that the number of companies I have talked to that are doing very domain-specific things, but doing them exceptionally well is large, right? And so you look at, you know, and again, I'm, I'm, I promise you I'm not leaving anyone off. I'm just coming to whatever comes to the top of my head, but, but Pachyderm or Snorkel for, for data processing. You have Tekton for things like feature engineering. You have, or Feast, an open source project, which already has plugins. Uh, obviously, uh, TensorFlow, PyTorch, Scikit, they continue to advance like mad and, and are just coming up with fantastic new ways to, to you know, do scale out high performance models in, in developer friendly ways. Litany of tools coming out of, for example, the, the Google team, example gen, stats gen, um, schema gen, uh, model analysis, all those kind of things, which, which Google uses internally. That's the same code they use internally, but they do it externally in, and make it available for everyone. Yeah, great company I was just introduced to, OctoML. They were the commercialization of TVM, a model compilation framework that simplifies taking a model and stripping it down to exactly the size and shape of various hardware platforms. Really cool stuff. Selden is doing amazing stuff around inference and multi-arm bandits and all these sort of very sophisticated things. They're making it very easy. So, and, and that's just a small set. I promise you, I've, I've tried to name everyone I possibly could. Ricto's doing data storage. Uh, I, I could honestly go on forever. So what, what you see around MLOps is a real blossoming in each of these domains, very specific to the thing that they're working on. And, and what's gonna be up to us is letting those things merge together in a very elegant way. And then the other half of that is, if you don't wanna manage this yourself, as you build this out, I think you will see a lot of cloud providers, and I'd be remiss if I didn't say, you know, Azure offers an equivalent hosted solution for literally every one of those steps as well. If you didn't want to host it yourself, you could call out to the Azure endpoint, execute, and then come back, and then everything else remains on-prem. That's, that's completely possible, and other cl cloud providers do as well. So, you know, I, I think you'll continue to see a lot more like Lego bricks, you know, come up and be like absolutely excellent at what they do. But, but systems that understand how to wire all these Lego bricks together in an elegant way, elegant and declarative way. So that's a really big thing. The other half of that is, you know, my passion, which is really about, you know, metadata and workflows and thinking about these things in an end-to-end -end way. How do you describe everything that went on for a given pipeline in a way that, that isn't just for lineage purposes, but is much clearer about things like debugging and, and things like that. Netflix uh, had an amazing blog a few weeks ago about having to write their own ML model to analyze the 2.5 gigabytes of logs that they output for every CI/CD pipeline. 
a run. And, and you're like, that is madness. But it makes sense. If you've ever done that, you know, developers are writing, you know, printf and console.log all the time just to understand what the hell is going on. That is a disaster. We need strong, structured objects for each one of these inputs and outputs of a CI/CD pipeline and MLOps pipeline. And not just that, but then we need to have the tools that help people reason about it. If you're a developer, you know, let me lay out the following nightmare scenario for you and tell you, you know, I'll leave it as an exercise to the reader how to solve. So let's say you have a six-step pipeline, just for the sake of argument, right? Not, that's not even like the big, remotely the biggest pipeline I've ever heard of, where you have something that happens A, B, C, D, E, right? And uh, F. And, and in A, you, you execute something that had, you know, that had an error, but it wasn't like caught by your system. It didn't cause a stack trace, anything like that. And then you get to F. And by F, it did actually cause a stack trace because there was a problem with some formatting in something that happened in A. Go debug that in under whatever, a day. I challenge you. It's just a nightmare. You have to pray that people have written console.log in the right place or printf or whatever, and have it somewhere and have saved the logs. Like, God forbid, right? You're going to be grepping against this thing or said or who knows what, figuring out where it is, what happened where, all those kind of things. We should have strongly typed objects that I can hand to anyone who has a declarative pipeline and allow them to reproduce exactly what went on with that, those inputs and outputs. And, and it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it's probably one of the areas I'm most passionate about I think that's a good place to call it. Thank you so much, David, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time and thank you for having me on. And for everyone listening in, I hope you got as much out of the conversation as we did. Until next time, I'm Kat. And I'm Carl. Signing off for Delivery Interrupted.